Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is the African Liberation Media. The day's date is February 9th, 2020, or 6260. I'm reminded of the fact that this is February, the great Amawali, Malcolm X, El Hodge, Malik El Shabazz is back in vogue. He made a very iconic statement. He intoned once we had the best organization in the world. N-word. Ruined it. Ruined it. Yeah, thank you, brother. I'm reminded also of Dr. King. He said, I get tired sometimes because of existential criticism from my own people. Jealousy is what we're talking about. Amma Wally or Malcolm X's commitment to the liberation of African people drew wide, uh, wide range criticism from middle class blacks as well as whites, as you might guess. November 22nd, 1963 was a watershed year for Malcolm X and his break from the Nation of Islam in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. Brother Amawali X made the statement, chickens are coming home to roost. This twinned with the jealousy that existed in the Nation of Islam alienated him from the messenger, Elijah Muhammad. Suffice it to say his nationalist Philosophy created conflict. He would receive the ire of the power structure, which he described as being worldwide with his domestic bases in places like Paris and London and Washington, D.C. He felt that the nation was in a political vacuum, criticizing civil rights organization but doing nothing about it, standing on the sideline. The nation's Physical retaliation was typically meted out toward members of the black community, particularly those who left the Nation of Islam. When LA police goons invaded a Muslim temple, killing a minister and wounding several Muslims, Muhammad excoriated his members and instructed them that vengeance was in the hands of the Lord. Hypocrisy, a double standard, retaliatory violence relegated to African people. Of course, Malcolm ultimately would move to submerge his differences, and he saw a common plight binding predicament regardless of religious affiliation or political tactics that were used. Some of his iconic statements include statements that are relevant now. The time has come for the black man to act in a self-defensive manner. He also inspired us to think for ourselves vis-a-vis being, uh, have our ideology and our thought process controlled by others who don't have our best interest in mind. He also felt that 
we should develop agency in terms of our direction and chart out a political destiny that was conducive to African people becoming free, proud, and productive members of the human race versus being relegated to a second-class citizenry. Of course, he never denounced violence, particularly self-defensive violence, and he was never an advocate of integration. Here with brothers Macaru, brothers Amos, brothers take it wherever you want to take it. We will be able to draw various intersections between my opening statement and what you have, and clearly there are Venn diagrams that we can connect from an ideological standpoint, whether it's coming from the ideas of Malcolm or Carter G. Woodson, uh, or some of, even some of the madness, we can contextualize that with the thought processes of Malcolm and Carter G. Wilson and, of course, Brother Amos Wilson. Go ahead with it, man. B.B. Fajodier, Bado Mapampano, African family. Another opportunity to discuss issues from a perspective that you will not hear anywhere else here on African liberation media. Yeah, there is a a new Netflix documentary titled Who Killed Malcolm X? I've only watched one part of it, so I want to watch the whole series before I comment on it. But the the thing that, one of the things that, that uh, I've always said about, about uh, Bob Omawali is that he believed in self-defense for everybody but himself. Um, had he believed in self-defense for himself, uh, those cowards that, you know, were able to get their weapons into the Audubon Ballroom on that day would not have been able to, uh, to you know, assassinate him. But, you know, we'll, I'll talk more about that. And the um, I have a blog post called uh, Malcolm's Fatal Freudian Slip which is related to the comments he made after the assassination of uh, President Kennedy by the deep state. But right now, it's February 2020, or 6260, and February, for me, always kicks off another year of African history. Not a week, not a month, but another year. But of course, all of this started with a rather remarkable brother by the name of Carter G. Woodson. Had a chance to review a speech by Dr. Greg Kamathi Carr, who's probably, I would say, the leading authority on Carter G. Woodson, even though he hasn't written a book about him. Dr. Kelly Harris had uh, Dr. Carr come up to Smith to talk about Woodson a couple of years ago uh, when Kelly was here. I think he's at Rutgers now. Uh, the the amount of information that, that uh, Dr. Carr dropped on us was extraordinary. So I want to read some of the things that I wrote on a recent blog post because I think a lot of people don't really know the history of Carter G. Woodson. It's a remarkable history. The story of Negro History Week, which has become Black History Month, of course for us is Black History Year after year after year, 
begins with the remarkable journey of Carter Godwin Woodson. Woodson was born in Buckingham County, Virginia in 1875, the son of two formerly enslaved Africans, James and Annaliza Woodson. James Woodson was a Civil War veteran as well as a carpenter and a farmer. Uh, apparently at some point when, during the Civil War, when his area of the, of the South was liberated, he, he became a, uh, involved with the Union Army, helping them on, on various things, helping them do various things in, in their campaign against the Confederacy. After a sporadic early education due to having to work on the family farm and in coal mines, Carter Woodson finally enrolled in high school at the age of 20. He finished high school in one year, and after, after several teaching jobs, Woodson attended Berea College for two years, obtaining the first, his first college degrees. From there, Woodson spent four years teaching in the Philippines, which was essentially an American colony after the Spanish-American War. In a span of five years, 1907 to 1912, Woodson earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Chicago and a Ph.D. from Harvard. Woodson became the only person whose parents who were born in the chattel slavery to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard. In 1915, Woodson began the work that would earn him the title Father of Black History. Of course, some other people also have this title. He observed the oppressive conditions of African people under the second cycle of white supremacy in the United States, American apartheid, and decided that one of the major problems of his people was a dearth of knowledge about their history. To correct this problem, Woodson and four others founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, now the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. This was in uh, 1915. He also published a book titled The Education of the Negro Prior to 1861, A History of the Education of the Colored People of the United States from the Beginning of Slavery to the Civil War. Um, this book is not as well known as his other book, The Miseducation of the Negro, but um, it's considered by many scholars to be high, a highly valuable uh, and needed reading. The Journal of Negro History, now the Journal of African American History, was started by Woodson in 1916. You can see this was a busy scholar. That's why I call him the People's Scholar. For two years, 1919 and 1920, he serves as Dean of the School of Liberal Arts and head of the graduate faculty at Howard University. Um, Woodson would obviously, he would have some problems working there at Howard, just like Dr. Wilson, and, and would eventually leave. Uh, he was just a very independent-minded person. Wilson was also a regular columnist for Marcus Garvey's Negro World new newspaper during this time period. In 1921, Wilson founded the Associated Publishers, a publishing company. He said, you know, we have to be able to control our information, and the only way we can do that is publish the information ourselves. Negro History Week was initiated by Wilson in 1926. Wilson published the Miseducation of the Negro in 1933, and he launched the Negro History Bulletin in 1937. Very busy brother, totally dedicated. Until his death in 1950, Carter G. Woodson remained a scholar activist, totally dedicated to the mental liberation and empowerment of his, of his people. He left us with a magnificent model of hard work and achievement to emulate. And if anybody hadn't seen Dr. Carr's lecture on Woodson. It's about a one-hour lecture. Check it out. Greg Kamathi Carr on Carter G. Woodson. You can see it on YouTube. Uh, just a couple of quotes because 
Um, obviously, with anything that African people do, there's an uh, there is always an attempt to restrict it or confine it uh, to a, to a certain time frame. Woodson recognized that the uh, power structure would 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 do this, so um, he said this. Negro History Week is the week set aside by the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History for the purpose of emphasizing what has already been learned about the Negro during the year. So clearly he saw the teaching of this history as uh, something that should be done 365 days and not for, ju not for just uh, one particular week. He said, this is sort of channeling uh, author uh, Schomburg, it's not so much a Negro History Week as it is a History Week. We should not emphasize Negro history, but the Negro in history. This is uh, what Dr. Clark said. Uh, Brother Schomburg told him, you know, that the black history is simply the missing pages of world history. Study your enemies and you'll understand. Uh, finally, just one more thing uh, that just showed, showed how advanced these uh scholars like Woodson were back in the 1920s. He said the case of the Negro is well taken care of when it is shown how much he has influenced the development of civilization. So what this uh, says is that Carter G. Woodson was well aware of the African origin of civilization in the 1920s. And, uh, you know, even uh, if you read David Walker's Appeal. You will see that David Walker was aware of how uh, Africans had practiced hydraulic engineering in the Nile Valley when he wrote his appeal in 1929. These are things that a lot of our people don't even know today. But those are just a few things. Uh, he said the mere imparting of information is not education. Mm -hmm. And he also said uh, philosophers have long conceded, however, that every man has two educators, that which is given to him and the other which he gives to himself. See, all of us have given ourselves extensive uh, educations. Of the two kinds, the latter is by far the more desirable. Indeed, all that is most worthy in man, he must work out and conquer for himself. It is that which constitutes our real and best nourishment, net nourishment, what we are merely taught seldom nourishes the mind like that which we teach ourselves. So this this is a this is a critical critical concept. Uh, no matter how many you know degrees you may pursue, it will never equal the amount of education that you give to yourself. You must give yourself an extensive education. One of the things I always did, man, if if I had any chance to go anywhere to hear one of our scholars speak. I'd beat a trail to that location. The one chance I got to hear Dr. Yosef Benyakin and my comrades who were in the uh, Columbia chapter of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilization had worked with Benedict College to get Dr. Ben a speaking engagement at Benedict. This was in, back in the 1990s. So they called and said, we got Dr. Ben down here. It was during the week. It was like on a Wednesday or something like that. Hey, man, I went to work. Took half a day off, beat a trail to Columbia, uh, got down there, carried my book, The Black Man of the Nile, got to hear Dr. Ben speak, got him to autograph the book. You just never know, you know, how, you know, when, you, know, you may only get one chance to see these people. You may only get one chance. So you really have to put forth the effort 
And I think so many people they, today are so self-consumed with, you know, what they may have read in a book and, you know, attempted to, to teach themselves. Going to sit down and listen to other scholars speak is education. That's part of your self-education. It's not, not, merely, not merely reading a book, but you have to go around and hear people. I, I was in Selma. I heard Dr. Clark was in Atlanta. Man, I jumped in my old uh, Ford LTD and beat a trail up Highway 80, you know, through Bloody Lowndes County, through Montgomery, past Tuskegee, you know, and on into the ATL just to hear Dr. Clark speak. So, you know, these are the kind of things that, that, that we need to be doing if we want to give ourselves an education. And, of course, this is critical to liberating our minds and then putting that work to practice, then putting what we've learned to practice on, into some kind of practical things. So, you know, those are a few comments about Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Critical, too, in ridding ourselves of European concepts, which enhances our spirit and is conducive to holistic healing. Okay, you can't have two things occupy the same space at the same time. That's just basic uh, concept as it relates to uh, physics or whatever discipline you want to use. You know, it's critical, and I think Malcolm spoke to that issue when he talked about ridding himself of European blood. You know, he spoke about... Uh, the improbability, the impossibility of that type of transformation from a physiological standpoint, but certainly it's possible from a spiritual cultural standpoint. Uh, Marivani deals with the necessity of cleansing ourselves of European concept, which is why self-education is also critical as it relates to uh, our healing. You know, if I'm not mistaken, you know, uh, correct me here, brothers, Carter G. Woodson said something about controlling the mind. You don't have to show the black man the back door. He'll find one or carve one out for himself. Mm. Uh, you know, something to that effect. Uh, yeah, let me give you exactly what he said. Okay, please. He said, no systematic effort toward change has been possible for taught the same economics, history, philosophy, literature, and religion which have established the present code of morals or lack of morals, could be a better way of describing it. The Negro's mind has been brought under the control of the oppressor. The problem of holding the Negro down, therefore, is easily solved. When you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You do not have to tell him not to stand here or go yonder. He will find his proper place and will stay in it. You do not need to send him to the back door, he will go without being told. In fact, if there's no back door, he will cut one for himself for his special benefit. His education makes it necessary. So what he was saying there was that, is that, you know, being if, if you continuously taught the same thing, the same history, the same economics, same philosophy, same literature, same religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then your code of conduct will never change. It'll never change. I mean, your your so your social practice will be forever something that benefits, uh, you know, the people who are oppressing us, our our historical enemies, and you know this is a this is a lot of lot of what we see 
today, um, not just in terms of what people taught, but because a lot of our young people totally reject what they see as something that just simply doesn't address them, something that they can't identify with. So they rebel against that. But in rebelling against that, they simply become models of our oppressors, and that's why we're gunning each other down in the streets. Yeah, when we were talking about uh, Patrick Mahomes or whoever, you know, Super Bowl MVP of the Chiefs. Undeserving. Yeah. You know, just (laughs) on some level, it seems to me, well, you know, you can't even debate it, you know, from a physiological standpoint that in some instances, it's probably better to be stupid than have intelligence potential, I'm going to call it. You know, because the average eighth grader can show you how a beetle will mutate. But in terms of our transformation, you know, we're dealing with the same old problems because miseducation, the inability, the unwillingness, uh, the lack of value placed on education, which subsequently can lead to self-transformation. You know, Brother almost you were talking about it earlier, the attitude, the jealousy. You can't see it's quitting time. Men word, I got to see it's quitting time. Uh, the white man may diss me, but in word you won't diss me. You know, it's like Brother Amos Wilson. You know, he said, you know, we've learned a lot, but the thing that we have failed to learn is how to get along with each other. Hmm. You know, go ahead, bro. And one of the statements you read in that statement from Carter G. Woodson was, our minds have been bought by the oppressor. And Carter G. Woodson represents the transformation that many of us have gone through in terms of consciousness, African-centered consciousness, or black consciousness, or consciousness in general, which means just to be aware of what's going on. Carter G. Woodson's background originally was uh, brought up in a well-to-do family, and he was a member of the Boule. Wow. So he saw firsthand how people like him were being used as tools or as gatekeepers to keep our people locked up by the oppressor mentally so that it will benefit the oppressor's agenda. And he broke the mold, and he wrote The Miseducation of the Negro from his own personal experiences because he saw how that affected him and the effect that it had on our people. So when I look at Carter G. Woodson, he really is the model for many of us when it comes to whether we're brought up in a religious background, we're all raised in a society. Some of us may be fortunate, I don't know, some, some of us may have parents who have given us an African-centered education, but many of us go through the same European white supremacist education system. So Carter G. Woodson is a representation of, in, in all of us in how we became aware of what was happening and decided to change our own selves and then reflect that same change onto our people. So by him starting Negro History Week, which later became Black History Month, it was done for that purpose. And like everything else, it has been transformed to fit an agenda that will make Europeans feel comfortable. This is why you get 
the same stories every year in Black History Month about the same people uh, because they still they miseducation the Negro. They still want to miseducate you and lock your mind into an education that keeps them in power. When you break away from that education and when you really start to learn about not only your history, but about their history, their true history, then you start to really break the mold and start to think about strategies to empower yourself. And that's the dangerous part that they want to keep locked up. Mm-hmm. And why? Because of what Sister Honey, I hope you get this word, young lady, Marimba, you know, the whole system is designed, and this comes from her, to maintain what she describes as the efficacy, the strength and power of the European Asili, the DNA, the cultural seed, ultimate objective being to maintain power over the cultural other, a system predicated on death and non-rebirth, a system that is uh, infected by what she describes as the Yurugu, whose primary objective is to maintain disorder and chaos throughout the universe. It's a heavy sister. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what you see going on now. I mean, now we have chaos in China uh, with the coronavirus, uh, a virus that nobody really still can pinpoint how it exactly started. Some people say that it came from a bat. Uh, coronavirus is, according to scientists and doctors, it's a virus that already exists in many animals. Okay. And so what they're saying is that the Chinese sometimes, somehow contracted this virus by either an animal that they ate or a bat that they ate that I don't know. Maybe it wasn't cooked properly. A bat that day, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what you were spousing last week, brother. Something to do with aliens and my bats. It's always something, man. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, when I first heard this, brother, I just dismissed it. I just assumed some pharmaceutical company was, you know, promoting this for their own economic benefit. Look, we don't know. Well, bats are supposedly... Uh, you know, they they are culprit in the Ebola virus also. Oh, okay. But you know a, Who knows? a, a laboratory is probably Fort Detrick, right. Fort Detrick Maryland. <laughs> probably right. the culprit. <laughs> right. But who knows? Who knows, man? But we are here. You know, this is a black liberation media to uh at least explore and to bring, you know, as Brother Macaru says, uh clarity from massive confusion. But you know, even you know, with many of us, I myself, you know, to confront an idea that drastically differs from, you know, the template that has been inculcated in your mind. Somebody told me this years ago. Can be uh, one of life's most uh, unsettling experiences, brother. Uh, you know, there's a term we want to use for it, cognitive dissonance. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we tend to reject it. You know, it's like at age one, growing up under white supremacy, coming to the realization that Santa Claus ain't real. <laughs> you thrown in the shock. 
Well, with this virus, I mean, we, we don't have any evidence of how it started, but we know that at this point it's killed, as of today, 805 people, and it's affected, um, I can't remember the exact number, but it's in the thousands of people that have contracted the virus. So it's, it's definitely a deadly virus, but um, primarily the biggest concern now is the spread of this virus, not only in Asia, but outside of, wow. outside of Asia. Um, the first African to be diagnosed with the virus uh, happened just past week. It was a student who was studying abroad in Asia from Cameroon that contracted the virus. Um, Ethiopia, Kenya, uh, Rwanda, many of these African countries have suspended flights and also started to quarantine people who were coming to their countries from uh, Wuhan, which is the city in China, where this virus uh, had its biggest outbreak or had, or had the outbreak start. You know, to your point, brother, I'm going back many years, you know, and you know, I appreciate the gathering always. It was uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger who said the depopulation of the world has to be the highest priority of the State Department. Mm -hmm. You know, Brother Amos Wilson comes along and says, uh, you know, it's not the number of people, it is the number of greedy people mm. in the world, which is the problem. Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that has to be researched because we can't be naive and, and not think that there's a plausible, a plausibility for Europeans to try to you know, destabilize the country of China, especially with the trade wars that have been going on between China and the U.S. And it's amazing that right after this deal that happened between the U.S. and Trump and uh, China, mm. this outbreak really took off. So we don't know if this could be, you know, the quote-unquote people who want the global agenda, the globalists trying to do something to stabilize the country because now, you know, this virus has potential to spread to Africa. We know how many Chinese and how many Asians are in Africa for, you know, their financial benefit. But now you have the potential for this virus to not only kill hundreds of people in China, which the U.S. is at war with, but also potentially go into Africa and destabilize African countries as well. And there's historical precedence. You talked about General Amherst, okay, who put the smallpox in the blankets. Mm. Always the agenda. Mm -hmm. Kill the natives, take the resources. You know, there's nothing really new about this. And a lot, a lot of the African countries, uh, the, the, the health systems are, are, are very fragile, you know, and how they would be able to, uh, to combat, you know, something like this if, you know, if it was, you know, widespread throughout the continent, it could be, it could, it could be a major problem. But we do know that, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of attention being given to the population the rapidly growing population of Africa as uh, 
as Europeans across the planet uh, have decided that they are no longer going to reproduce enough people to sustain themselves, uh, particularly there are a lot of countries where the uh, birth rate of, of people is, uh, these countries are in fact dying slowly. And, and Africa has, uh, African countries, a lot of African countries have the world's fastest growing population. So, uh, you know, they see this as a problem. A friend of mine sent, sent a video. I'll have to uh, go through it and maybe discuss it. Bill Gates, uh, Emmanuel Macron, and some others are talking about the population growth of Africa being a threat to Europe, wow. meaning a threat to European people. So, you know, this the, the, these things, you know, the thing about it, you know, they talked about, you know, with the outbreak of Ebola, and Ebola is a very strange virus because it comes and goes, it comes and goes, and how does it, something like that happen? And they were talking about, you know, the, some of the animals that, you know, that uh, African people were eating, but African people have been eating these animals for millions of years, right? So, and how does something, how does a disease jump from animals to humans? Cross species. Yeah, so. Yeah, there, there, on, You know, there's a, there's, a lot, there's a lot there, but. A lot of people are criticizing the Chinese government because they said the doctor who first discovered this tried to warn them that they needed to take immediate action in terms of quarantines and whatnot. And they saw him as an alarmist, somebody that would, you know, perhaps cause some kind of uh, damage to their uh, economy. And so they pretty much ignored this guy. He, re he passed last week because he kind of, you know, he was working to help save people and, uh, he wound up, you know, contracting the disease himself. So, you know, I, who knows? Yes, and uh, I was reading that Equatorial Guinea just donated $2 million to the Chinese government to help them fight against coronavirus. I don't know where they get this money from to, <laughs> to donate. I mean... Well, they got money because because it's a it's an all-rich country and it's run, by, <laughs> it's, it's run by one family of dictators... Uh, they are highly touted by, by the North Atlantic countries as one of their allies. Um, but they could have donated the money to help fight e the Ebola outbreak in the, uh, in the Congo. Well, that's what I was saying. That's exactly what I was about to say. I don't know where they get this money to, go to, to donate to China, but they don't donate to help countries in Africa that are having crisis. Exactly. Defies logic, bro. But... You know, that's what we're dealing with. Um. <laughs> you know, while we're on that, uh, uh, recently the uh, the United States is, is making some moves against, you know, some African countries. And it seems uh, for some reason that they have targeted Nigeria. Nigeria certainly is not, not regarded as any kind of a revolutionary or... <laughs> country or anything in Africa uh, but it, it has been targeted by, 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 by the Trump administration uh, uh, saying that uh, you know it was a potential uh, uh, source of, of, of terrorism I, I'll just read the article that uh, pulled off of RT 
The U.S. is punishing Nigeria amid a humanitarian crisis where the West African nation is grappling with the violent terrorist problem in the form of Boko Haram, a terrorist entity that the United States indirectly helped, helped raise the power. The Trump administration is considering expanding its travel ban to include five more countries, all these are African countries, including Nigeria. While there is opposition to the plan, it is still unclear to what extent this ban will go and it may only target certain government officials or types of visas. As the media notes, Nigeria works together with the United States in areas of counterterrorism, and the intention uh, came as a surprise to the Nigerian government, who will have to look for uh, ways its officials can now meet with investors. It is therefore difficult to discern the official reason that the United States, that led the United States to, con to consider adding Nigeria onto his hits list to his hits list, although the White House spokesman has defended the travel ban saying that it is uh had been profoundly successful in protecting our country, raising the uh, security baseline around the world. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to exactly why uh the government would, would uh ex the Trump administration would extend this travel ban uh, you know, to to Nigeria. And uh, a country that, 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 quite frankly, large parts of the country, despite the fact that its uh, GDP is growing, large parts of the country are totally destabilized by the uh, Islamic insurgency in the north, northeast of the country. And then you have the ethnic conflict between the Fulanis and the Houses, uh, you know, in, in, other, in other parts of the area. And then, of course, you have uh, the ongoing, you know, crisis in the Delta there with the Igbo people, so uh, you know this is this is something that uh, that certainly has taken people from Nigeria because you know they always consider themselves to be in good standing, you know, with the uh, with the with the good white people of the United States, and uh, they they've been totally caught off guard. So this is something for us to to be aware of. But the, this particular writer says that uh, his theory is that uh, this is what he had to say. He said, we can never know for sure the reason why Nigeria is in the crosshairs of U.S. foreign policy, but we can speculate based on what we know about the West African nation and the overarching geostrategic concerns that typically govern U.S. foreign policy. Nigeria is the largest producer, is Africa's largest producer of oil in its economy, beating out South Africa for the top spot. It's beating out South Africa for the top spot. Despite the many real issues plaguing the country, the International Monetary Fund has, has projected that its gross domestic product would expand by 2.5% this year. Its population is growing more than twice the speed of the world average, and, it's just, and in just a few decades it will surpass that of the United States. Whether or not this will be a positive development for the country remains to be seen, but the nation is showing a lot of signs that lead to that that lead to countries like China and India outputting rapid economic economic growth over the years. So, the thought process is that they want to prevent Nigeria from becoming another China or another India, for example. And this is one of the reasons why, because this travel ban would make it difficult for them uh, to do business, you know, in 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 the United States. So. You know, that just goes to show, man, that, uh, you know, these people are 
they will go to any lengths to maintain their hegemony, their control uh, of the world and its resources. I mean, think about it. If you cut off faith in the the, the biggest financial supporter uh, or partner of a lot of these African countries, if you cut off faith in being able to do business with China because of this virus, and at the same time you create a ban where people can't travel and do business in the U.S., now you're talking about global white supremacy or trying to impose your will. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And and what you know, and 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 what and what a lot of people you know uh, don't connect. You know, we we always try to connect the dots here, and the uh, the the insurgency, the Boko Haram insurgency, uh, grew exponentially after uh, the overthrow and assassination of Muammar Gaddafi and the collapse of the uh, Libyan uh, Jamaharia. Uh-huh. Because uh, all of the weapons that Gaddafi had been procuring over the years suddenly became available on the uh, on the open market, and a lot of those weapons, uh, RPGs, and all all kinds of other uh, anti-tank weapons and whatnot, have become available to terrorist organizations throughout Africa, particularly uh, the Sahel and, uh, and 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 other parts of Africa, including Nigeria. So now that this organization has declared its allegiance, uh, this Boko Haram organization has declared its allegiance to the Islamic State and is being supplied with the uh, the latest weapons, it's creating a lot of damage. It's causing a lot, a lot of damage. So, you know, it was the U.S. overthrow of Libya that, 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 that escalated this crisis, a terrorist crisis, in Nigeria and other parts of the Sahel. So once again, the objective is to keep Africa constantly destabilized, keep them in a position of dependency because the first thing a lot of African leaders do is they want to turn to France, turn to the United States, turn to the United Kingdom for military support. And this what happens then, you know, you know, what whatever type of, uh, you know, sovereign designs you have is now are now suddenly compromised. If they would just turn to each other, just turn to each other. A lot of these issues can be resolved, and the dependency can be wiped away. The guy could have donated his money to help create an uh, a African Union army, right? Right. So that so that uh, so that African people can solve these problems ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's what it, that's what he could have done. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why it's important to have a real, actual grassroots movement that can gain enough power and support on the ground before you actually try to take power. I think one of the biggest failures in a lot of leaders is they try to take power without actually having power. And then they end up getting overthrown because they don't have the ability the ability to or the power to defend themselves or stop um, enemies from being able to invade and destabilize the government. So it's really got to be an underground movement where a lot of organization takes place and it's going to take a lot of time to build up enough of a defense system so that then when you become, when you go above ground, then you have all of the resources and you have a defense system to be able to defend yourself. You look at um, the president of North Korea, he can say whatever he wants. 
He can make threats. He can test missiles. And they still haven't gone and overthrown him because he has the defense system that they are actually afraid if he launches this, these missiles that they can be killed, that these missiles could actually reach, successfully reach the United States. So that's, that's really the, the, the method um, to this whole 2,000-year problem is military strength. If you have military strength, then you can defend yourself from being overtaken and from being disempowered. Yeah, you know, and what happens is, you know, Kwame Ture always talked about power in three concepts, seize, hold, develop. So in a lot of instances, we have been able to seize, holding and develop, developing are, 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 are become the two critical issues. So so what happens in a lot of, in a lot of uh, countries where you, you can have a leader like Kwame Nkrumah, but almost everybody in the military has been trained by either the United States or the United Kingdom. So, so, so you have these people who have uh, their, their loyalties are questioned. You know, the same, the same with um, uh, the uh, the army of uh, Burkina Faso under Thomas Sankara. You had people who were essentially n- nothing other than French operatives. Uh, the, the 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 same with Mobutu, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and and Lumumba. Now every now and then you will get somebody that was trained by them, like uh, Idi Amin or Jerry Rawlins, who will re- re- will rebel against their their training. But most often, you know, these people they they have ties. They have they they maintain their contacts. The the officers that have trained these guys or have in the United States or the United Kingdom or France or wherever, they maintain contacts with, with the officers that they've trained when they go back to these African countries. You know, Paul Kagame was at Fort Leavenworth. He was undergoing training at Fort Leavenworth when uh, Museveni started his rebellion against the uh, government of, of, uh, of Uganda and uh Kagame left uh, Fort Leavenworth and came back to Uganda to fight with Museveni to overthrow the government. And then Museveni supported him, Kagame, when he launched his, uh, you know, war against the the Hutu regime in, in, in Rwanda. But the contacts that these people have established, see, there's a reason why a, a lot of these guys... Uh, like Kagame, for example, can can do all kinds of things, and never and and, and never come under any kind of attack because uh, from the United States or the yeah, United he's Kingdom. A, he's an ally because he's an ally. Yeah, and, they I mean, they, they trained that, him, and, and they do that in, in many countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, Saddam Hussein was an ally. Mm-hmm. I mean, he trained uh, with the CIA. So, yeah, I mean, it happens across the board. But that's why, like what Secretary said, seize, hold, and develop. It's got to be something that takes takes place before that seize, because you, you can't seize and be unprepared, because then you're not going to have the opportunity to hold or develop. So you got to be able to train, strengthen yourself, then seize, and then you have the power to hold and the power to develop. I'm not a believer in mythology, but in the Bible, even it says when Moses took the Israelites into the wilderness, 
They waited for a period of 40 years before they went back out and started killing and slaughtering all of these different African nations or African people. Well, the Negroes had to die. Yeah, he wanted to purge. You, yeah. you, you know, he wanted to purge. Well, he, But know. he also, the part of that strategy was for the young males to grow up and become soldiers. Right. Trained, you know, trained for 40 years. Yeah. Now you have the strength to go out and fight. Now mm-hmm. you got the strength. We know, it's, we know it's not a real story. Yeah. But, I mean, it's like Aesop's fables, right? You could take something from, a narrative from the story mm-hmm. and say, okay, we need a grassroots movement that's going to train African people to be prepared for warfare. Well, the yeah. best example of that is none other than, you know, Dr. Fidel Castro Ruz. Raul Castro and Che Guevara, right? Mm-hmm. They formed their own guerrilla army, mm-hmm. right? And so so when they did seize power, they installed their own army, mm-hmm. the people who had been fighting with them. And so, you know, the, the people who were in Batista's army, you know, had to, you know, had to, had to surrender. They, they, you know, they, they couldn't accept them, you know, unless, you know, they swore some kind of allegiance. But but they made sure that the, the people who had been fighting with them were in control. And so, you know, what has happened, most of these African leaders have come to power, you know, via, uh, you know, in either independence, uh, you know, independence movement, not really, you know, armed struggle and whatnot. So, and so the, the army that was there was put there, you know, by the former colonial powers. And that's why you had... Coup after coup after coup after coup after mm-hmm. coup on the African continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, <clears throat> two of the components that have to be present is that you have to have huge defections from the established order. You know, such was the case down in Cuba, ninety miles away from Florida, and uh, people have to come to the realization that the ideology of the established the ruling class is, is totally bankrupt. Uh, you know, in the case of Cuba, they are militarily prepared. In other words, you could not, to my knowledge, just destabilize their uh, military apparatus because many of the uh, amphibious material has been for years underground uh, with the capability of always being deployed to attack an invader. And, of course, one of the unifying elements uh, in the hearts and minds of the Cuban people is the imminent danger on the part of the Yankee imperialists to the north. You know, whenever <laughs> uh, Castro Ruiz uh, felt rumblings, he could always rely on the reality of this real in- enemy. Well, you have to operate in the state of paranoia, and that's what he did. Everywhere he went, he took his own food. He was very paranoid about, because he knew they were trying to kill him. And you got to realize that you can't always run to Russia and China because they have spies in every country. So you may be talking to uh, a, a Chinese-American uh, spy who's working for China, and then you divulge these plans that you have to this person thinking that you can trust them, they're taking the information right back to NATO, and then they can form plans to go in and destabilize and overthrow your country. So a lot of this stuff has to be in-house, and a lot of spies will be African people too. 
like you did like like Marco talked about you know people that they trained before but they also have active people who are spies that work in these governments in these different countries on behalf of uh, the U.S. And, and other countries do it too. I mean, they have Russian spies that are in the United States government mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, or Chinese spies that are in the uh, United States government. Who specialize in torture. And Isra- Israeli spies, they, they spy on their allies. Yep. There was a, uh, this, uh, this uh, guy that really and truly should have been charged with terrorism, but for no. some reason he wasn't. Uh, was sentenced this week, Lieutenant Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard Lieutenant Christopher Hassan uh, was sentenced to uh, 13 years for a, a terror plot. A Coast Guard officer who kept 15 guns and other weapons in his Maryland home and allegedly planned to kill people in an attack in support of white nationalism was sentenced to 13 years in federal prison in a case that illustrated the difficulty of prosecuting accused would-be domestic terrorists who are who are arrested before they carry out the violent crime. So here's the thing. Because he couldn't hadn't carried out the crime, they said they couldn't charge him with terrorism. But you can you can be on a you can have you can be having a conversation with somebody in Africa right now. Any one of us could be having a conversation with somebody in Africa. And they could say that that person in Africa is linked to uh some type of terrorist organization. And we could be charged we could be charged with aiding and abetting an, an enemy combatant just by a mere conversation. Yeah, and the <laughs> hypocritical thing in terms of state-sponsored terrorism is that they launch many of these attacks, these preemptive attacks, based on the pretext of intentionality. Yeah, intentionality. Yeah. So, so it, I, it, yeah. it works for them, but uh, you know, <laughs> this guy. So. Uh, Hassan 50 was indicted last year and pleaded guilty to firearms and drug charges. See, he wasn't even charged with any kind of terrorist activities. Authorities said he intended to embark on a murderous campaign targeting liberal uh, politicians on Capitol Hill and prominent on-air, on-air cable TV hosts. Defense lawyers wanted Hassan released on uh, probation, saying he would never have committed these acts. And uh, the, the judge wound up agreeing with the prosecution that, in fact, that that he would have done that. Uh, you know, this was a guy, the prosecution cast him as a hate-filled white nationalist meticulous, meticulously planning a campaign to murder and sabotage that he that uh, he eventually would have carried out. Uh, and so, you know, he, once again, we got, uh, you know, one of these white terrorists who is not charged with terrorism and he'll, he'll be out of jail, you know, Within a, within a few years, guaranteed, guaranteed, he'll be out of he'll be out of jail within a few years, but uh, you know we have people that have been in been in jail now for fifty years, you know, like Chip Fitzgerald and others. So, you know, this is um, you know th- th- this is this is what this is how this system works. Um, it's like Jagger Hoover said, justice is incremental to law and order, and it doesn't apply to white terrorists. Clearly, brother, it does not apply to white terrorists. Uh, there's never been a county insurgency plan to disrupt or destroy the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the American Nationalist Party. Only the progressive uh, members, organizations inside the United States, in the quote, have been targeted 
historically, whether you're talking about the Black Panther Party, the you know SCLC, the um, American Indian Movement, or Puerto Rican Nationalists. Uh, I think Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winner, expresses it best when he describes many of these white terrorist organizations, be it the Klan, be it Oath Keepers, or uh, something, boys, I can't think of the name of it, but it's white nationalist organization with the, you know, they are the shock troops of the ruling elite. Progressive organizations are destroyed, of course, uh, offering the ruling class element of the white supremacist structure to wash their hands in a manner of plausible denial without being directly involved. But, you know, suffice it to say, many of these organizations are financed by retrograde groups, people like the Koch brothers and others who are protecting their interests, you know, groups operating historically. I see no change happening to the detriment of their own economic plight by the predicament. Clearly, once again, you know, racism far supersedes one's economic concern. How would Fred Hampton have pulled this off? It's beyond me, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we all need some, you know, comedic relief. Uh, the uh, the president of the United States um, proved once again that presidents don't have to know geography. You know, that is unless they're, you know, launching uh, drones or cruise missiles against people in Asia and Africa. So after uh, the Super Bowl, President uh, Don John Trump said, congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs on a great game and a fantastic comeback under immense pressure. You represented the great state of Kansas and, in fact, the entire USA so very well. Our country is proud of you. Of course, Don John apparently had no idea that, that Kansas City, there are two Kansas cities, the Chiefs play in Kansas City, Missouri. There is also a Kansas City, Kansas. But it just goes to show that, uh, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to even know something as basic as geography. I remember being in the third grade in my segregated classroom. And we had to know not only the capital of each state in the United States, all 50 states, we had to know the boundaries of those states because the teacher would call on you and tell you, uh, you know, what are, what are the boundaries of Tennessee? You know, and you had to know. Tennessee is bordered on the north by Kentucky, you know, on the east by North Carolina, on the south by uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, and on the west by Arkansas and Missouri. You had to know that, mm -hmm. right? And so it, 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 it's just amazing. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we had some fun with it on our page because we, we posted this thing, uh, these uh, comments one time by uh, Obama, who said that uh, he was in, I think he was in Oregon, and he said that uh, he had now been to, been to uh, 57 states in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been another uh, exciting uh, edition of the African Liberation Media. Tune in, check us out on our various platforms, and have another week of African liberation and empowerment. Bibi Fahodi. Power or the lack of power. 
I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.